And Father, now would you make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, I don't think that we could sum up together. I don't think we could sum up what the Bible teaches about Jesus and the resurrection any better than what we've already done this morning when we said together, he is risen. He is risen. We celebrate today an event that happened, Jesus rising. But it isn't the event, really, that we're focused on. It's Jesus. It's on Christ. He is risen. He is risen. So I want us to think about that this morning. I want us to think about the resurrection and what the Bible tells us about the resurrection. I want us to think this morning about what is the message of the resurrection and what is the meaning of the resurrection and what is the mandate of the resurrection. What responsibility does it place upon us? And just so you know where I'm headed with this outline, I'm going to just spell it out very briefly. The message of the resurrection is that Jesus died. He rose and he's coming again. The meaning of the resurrection is that he atoned for sin when he died. He defeated death when he rose and he is coming to save and to judge. And then the mandate of the resurrection, that's responsibility that it places upon us, is that we are called to repent of our sins in light of his dying, to confess Christ as Lord in light of his rising, and to prepare for his return because he is coming again. And as you think about that with me, just pause and reflect on this. So without the resurrection... Without his, Jesus rising from these, the dead, none of these statements could be true. Except for that one little bit that he died. But other than that, obviously he didn't rise. He's dead, dead. And if he's dead, dead, then he's not coming again. And his death was very ordinary. I mean, if he is dead, dead, he certainly didn't atone for sin any more than he defeated death. He's in no position to return to save anybody or to judge anything. I mean, if he's dead, dead, you may want to repent of sins for your own good reason, but it's not because he rose. And it's a delusion to confess him, a dead man, as Lord, or to spend your life preparing for his return. I'm saying that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the linchpin on everything we know and believe about him. So I want us to think about this, beginning with the message of the resurrection. Now, if Jesus truly rose from the dead, the fact he, he died is obvious. That he's coming again may not seem so obvious until you, until you think about it. It's really quite remarkable that according to the New Testament, Jesus' resurrection is the guarantee of his return. That Jesus' resurrection wasn't just for Jesus. That in his rising from the dead, the entire order of creation was reversed in him. And so much so that what was brought forth by the resurrection was so transformed as to be a new creation. 
If you saw his body after the resurrection compared with before the resurrection, you would know it is the same body. I mean, you would see the marks in his hand and in his side and his, in his feet. He showed Thomas these things, but so transformed at the same time as to be a new creation, impervious to death. In the resurrection, the very good of creation, you know what I'm talking about in Genesis 1.31 after God created everything. Before the fall, he pronounced it all very good. In the resurrection, the very good of creation, before death and corruption entered the world, before there was sin, before there was suffering, and before there was all the consequent distortions of the world as God created it, in the resurrection, all the very good of creation was singled out and was glorified in Christ. In Jesus, everything that had to be changed in order to make all things new were changed, but not just for him. Now, this isn't something that happens to you. This isn't something that comes to you, and then you just keep it to yourself. That'd be the ultimate selfishness, wouldn't it? The ultimate selfishness. That'd be like giving a Rolls Royce to a rock star, you know? All right. This is my Rolls Royce. I just thought I'd show a few people what I'm driving in. Too bad you can't join me. It'd be like Falstaff in the Merry Wives of Windsor. I will not lend thee a penny. It'd be like Ebenezer Scrooge. When people came to him and requested that he would give a gift for the poor at Christmas. Are there no prisons then? Are there no workhouses where they can go? That kind of response would be so old creation, so smug, so self-serving. But in the, new, in the resurrection, we are talking about the new creation. And only the greatest evil would withhold the greatest good from humankind. And that was never Jesus. He will return, which is what he told his disciples to tell the world he's going to do, that he is the key to the resurrection for us. What then of the meaning of the resurrection? In particular, his death. Was it different? Or was it the same as everyone else's? What does the resurrection say about that? And of course, this is a trick question, honestly, because on the one hand, Jesus' death was horribly, horribly the same as other deaths. It was grievously similar. He'd been viciously beaten in the face. His flesh had been ripped out with a uh, ripped open with a whip that had been embedded with lead nails. Spikes had been driven through his hands and his feet into a cross, and he was then left hanging there to disrupt his, his respiration, his breathing. He went into shock, his organs shut down, and he died. But his death also was one of a kind. There was more to it. He was accomplishing something in his dying, his, his dying was a step on the way to the resurrection. It was part of something that was much, much 
bigger. You know, if, if a poor man is murdered, he's called a victim. If a man gives his life for someone else, he's called a hero. If God offers himself to save human beings forever, that is called atonement. And the idea of atonement has a very rich history that predates Jesus by thousands of years. And it's very well documented in the Bible. Now, if you hear me mention the Bible this morning and are tempted then to roll your eyes because it's just the Bible, let me just say this. Whether you think it's the Bible or whether you think it's just the Bible, regardless of how you view it, the Bible is the source book on the atonement. It is the first and the oldest authority. Anyone who wants to talk or write about the atonement has to write from Scripture, regardless of what they think of the Bible, because it is the source book. And the idea at the heart of the atonement is substitution, that one individual takes the place of another to suffer in his or her place. And what's more, that that suffering is not unjust, but is just. That suffering is God's judgment on the guilty. Now, please don't jump ahead of me here, because if you do, you're going to say something probably like this. But God is merciful, and God is forgiving. He, he doesn't hold things over people. And I want to say I agree with everything you may be thinking, except for how it began. Because that sentiment begins with, but God. It begins with, with a protest, as a protest against the atonement, by pleading for God's mercy and pleading God's forgiveness, as if there's some contradiction between his mercy and his forgiveness and, and atonement. But there isn't. It is not but God. It is because God is merciful and forgiving that he promised to make atonement for our sins, for the wrongs for which we're guilty. Long before Jesus was ever born, God taught the necessity of atonement and the sacrifices he commanded in the law. He promised also through the prophets that this atonement that was required, that was necessary, would come through a man he would send. Now, I know that this raises a question, and I think it's a good question to ask. The question is, is the God of the Bible primitive, barbaric, for requiring atonement? Or are we simplistic in our view of forgiveness when we renounce the atonement? Let me ask you a question this morning. Have you ever had to forgive someone who embraced lies about you and spread them to other people because it suited them to do that? Have you ever had to forgive someone who turned your name into their favorite obscenity to express how much they despised something? Have you ever had to forgive somebody who was hostile to you and rejected you completely, pretended you did not exist, you were not even around, except when they badly needed something from you. 
An atheist. What is an atheist? Really, what is an atheist? It's someone who believes that God isn't worth their time. God isn't worth their consideration. And they live like it. And the problem with this isn't just, it isn't that it hurt, hurts God's feelings. The problem is not that God is thin skin. The problem with this is that the effects are devastating. Do you realize that all the evils we inflict on ourselves, all the evils we inflict on others are done in moments of atheism? And incidentally, history shows the religious people make the worst atheists of all. Because they justify what they're doing in the name of their idols. But to forgive someone, you know this, I know this, you've forgiven, I've forgiven. You have to assume the wounds that that person inflicted on, on you. And most of us, I would say all of us here, can, can do that. We can forgive when we're talking about, you know, occasional slights or the hurts that have been directed our way by someone who, who's, who's not, you know, who's, who, who's not our enemy. I mean, it just happens. People make mistakes. No one's perfect. But what about a relentless enemy? And I'm talking about humankind in relation to God. I say this often here on Sunday mornings. Understand, please, our human nature betrays us. God's forgiveness is wider, <laughs> much broader, it runs deeper. And it is truer than our forgiveness. God's forgiveness, you have to understand, it's God. It's God kind of forgiveness. It is, it is unconditional. His forgiveness is eternal. It's not just for slights or little insults. It's not because someone penny pinched from us. It's it is unconditional and it is eternal. And forgiveness like that, which only God can give, requires atonement. Forgiveness requires the removal of guilt once and for all. This is very, very different from pretending someone isn't guilty or for denying that someone is, guilt, is guilty. It's very, very different from that. Forgiveness is not absolute until your guilt has been dealt with, absolutely. Until it has been dealt with once and for all. And only God can do that. And he did it in Christ. And as Vina read this morning, when Jesus in his final moments before dying cried out, it is finished. He was not referring to the efforts of others to kill him he was not referring to his own life. He was referring to the work that he had come to accomplish on the cross. And that was the work of atonement. And the fact that Jesus made atonement for our sins at the very point of our uttermost rejection of him proves, proves that God loves sinners. 
And having fully atoned for sin, there's no judgment left for Jesus to suffer. Death had no power over him. He is, he is risen. He's the Lord over death. He's the Lord over life. He's the Lord over you. He's the Lord over me. And when he returns, this one who made atonement, this one who defeated death, when he returns, he will save and he will judge. And he will save those who've availed themselves of his mercy. He will judge those who will not and whose lives prove their atheism. Well, that's the meaning of the resurrection. We've looked at the message of the resurrection. What of the mandate? The responsibility that comes to us as a result. In respect to, in respect to Jesus' death, the mandate of the resurrection is to repent of our sins. In respect to his rising, the mandate of the resurrection is that we confess him as Lord. In respect to his coming again, the mandate of the resurrection is to prepare for him. C.S. Lewis described repentance in this way. He said of repentance, it is not something God demands of you before he will take you back and which he could let you off if he chose. It is simply a description of what going back looks like. It's full speed astern, he wrote. Repentance is reversal. It is return. It is restoration. It is renewal. All the way to the point of being, what did Jesus say? Of being born again. That's what repentance is. And it is the only way to move forward. It's the only way to move close to God or toward him. Full speed, astern. The measure of our gratitude for what Christ endured for us is seen in our resolve to avoid sins rather than to add to them. And I want to say that these two paths are as far apart from one another as sincerity is from mockery. He's not only coming back to save. You have to remember that. He's not mocked. And he's not only coming back to save. The mandate of the resurrection is repent. And it's also to confess Christ as the Lord. Why? Because it's the truth. That's why. And we refuse to live a lie any longer. We love once we want what we once hated. We hate what we once loved. We embrace the one we, want, we once rejected. We reject what we once embraced. And we find in this common ground with many, many others who've come to the same point, whom God has drawn to the same point, and we become worshipers alongside of them, of God, in relation to God, worshipers with them in relation to one another, the New Testament says, brothers and sisters in Christ. And we also prepare for Jesus' return, like a, like a bride preparing for her husband. We long to be as you know, devoted and as faithful to him as, as he is to us. And so we cultivate these things in ourselves. And we do that because it's our way of loving him. And when it comes down to it, really, the mandate of the resurrection really is to love 
to love. Because he is, he's risen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you so much for this portion of your word as we would continue to worship you now. We ask you to fill us with your Holy Spirit. We ask to be glorified. Amen.